Before we begin, we acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and the continuing connections to lands, waters and communities. We pay respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of APRA and the National Boards. I'm Tash Miles. We recently had an episode on rural and remote healthcare and today we continue that discussion. In particular, we're going to talk about innovations and workarounds unique to rural and remote healthcare and where there's opportunity for metropolitan health services to learn from what's happening in rural and remote settings. Joining me is Faye McMillan, the Deputy National Rural Health Commissioner, and Richard Colbin, CEO of New South Wales Rural Doctors Network. Welcome. Faye, let's start with you. And this podcast is about rural and remote healthcare. Could you start by telling us a bit about your experiences in these communities and what you do? Thanks, Tash, and lovely to be here with Richard today. Um, I too would like to just acknowledge um, that I'm coming from the lands of the Aradri people, my ancestral land, and um, again, pay my respects to elders past, present, and anyone who is listening that is Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, so thank you. I'm originally a um, community pharmacist. I'm a trained and still registered and practicing community pharmacist. And apart from a very short stint, um, all of my practice has been in rural and remote communities. Uh, I, I see the value of practitioners that work in rural and remote communities and the opportunity to be part of a community. So, you know, to me, being involved in rural communities and remote communities is really about understanding the fabric in which you are trying to weave yourself into. And so I do feel really blessed to be able to do that. As a Wiradjuri woman, though, I also acknowledge that, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and communities, particularly in rural and remote areas of Australia, face very different challenges to um, other geography and other environments but there are challenges that are being faced across and part of this is recognizing that there are upstream and downstream and even you know pools in the middle of learning from metropolitan through to um, rural and remote communities but also rural and remote communities having value that can contribute to the learning experiences of metropolitan centers so I feel really um as I said, privileged. I, I do feel humbled to be part of mm-hmm. a rural community that allows me to practice in all of um, my capacities. Um, the other part is, you know, is working within the education sector of increasing not just the understanding, but the place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in innovation, in healthcare, and how we can do that effectively. So um, that's me in a nutshell. Thank you, Faye. It's a really good frame for the discussion. Richard, could you talk about what you do and what you what perspectives you bring to the rural and remote healthcare settings? Thanks, Tash, and thanks for the chance to join you today and uh, and the work that your organisation is doing in bringing new knowledge and new thinking and sharing information back to the sector as well. And I'm speaking with you today from Nunawal country. Also acknowledge Faye as well for her her work and um, the, the potential that she's got to bring to all the conversation around rural health in her new role too. So, so my background is I've been the CEO of New South Wales Rural Doctors Network, or RDN as we call it, for close to six years. Uh, RDN's an independent charity. It, it, it works predominantly with the focus of helping to support access to quality care in remote and rural communities. So despite our name as Real Doctors, 
the original purpose was for a group of doctors to work together to support access to care. And we try to do that today through a whole host of different activities, which work around service models in community, engaging local communities, looking at workforce strategies, uh, sharing information and knowledge as well. And uh, my background is actually, I'm a PE teacher by trade uh, and have probably worked in not-for-profit sector with a rural focus for close to 20 years. And so my real professional interest is actually around the capability of organisations and the way that they go about supporting in community and, my, and looking for them to be more constructive and more effective in how they do their work. And uh, I found that to be a really interesting part of the work at RDN as well. Because when you think about the role of an organisation servicing rural communities, we need them to be great employers. We need them to be effective and we need them to be able to navigate the very complex system of health and social care as well. And so I often find that those organisations that are most successful in remote and rural Australia, be it in health or other industry as well, actually have a great ability to contribute to broader thinking for the nation. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Faye, could we talk about what it's like to be a health practitioner in a rural and remote community and what, what is rewarding about that and I guess maybe what's different about it when compared to working in a metropolitan area? I haven't actually worked in a metropolitan area, so I really can't uh, point to those differences, but what I can highlight is the value of um the healthcare practitioners that do work with um, rural and remote communities and what that does. For me, it is the opportunity to be part of the community, not an an add-on. It's the opportunity to um, very viscerally feel the experiences that are happening that might sit outside of health, but really do inform what could be potential for innovations in health. It's the opportunity to look at how um, multiple components of communities need to come together and that exists in smaller components in rural and remote, but, you know, in urban centres as well. So, you know, role of local government, role of private industry, the role of not-for-profits, you know, all of these things that come together and you can actually see the stitching that happens probably a little more um, overtly in rural and remote communities because, it really is there to be seen and people are engaging in it. But on a really personal level, you know, to be actually in that community and know what it means and then have those connections to other communities really does give you um, opportunity to hear more authentically, not just the challenges, because we often speak of the challenges that are in rural and remote experiences, but the real joys and the real um, you know, celebrations of when things work well, because there are a lot, you know, rural and remote communities, whilst they do have challenges, so does every community, irrespective of where they are. And I think what we need to be um, looking at is how do we harness what, what is working well and how can we share those experiences both you know, in an urban and um, in other rural and remote communities. And so they won't be the same, but how can we share the building blocks of something that may have potential to be used? And for me, that's the joy of being part of a rural and remote um, health workforce is the opportunity to collaborate, the relationships that exist in multiple points 
Um, as I said, some of the challenges that may not be as noticeable though for urban is, you know, the context of um, technology and the use of technology in rural and remote communities, unless we have exceptional infrastructure that they can at times be fragmented. You know, I often refer, you know, to when I work, um, we'll have people come in with e-scripts and things like that. And that's great if the internet's working well, if, you know, the systems allow those communications to take place. But when they don't, you do see um, how health systems and how health professionals really respond to the human that's in front of them. So you might not be able to get the script down at that moment, but you can talk to the person who's in front of you and find out what it is they need. Is it urgent? Can we do something about it? And how we use the systems and structures to make sure that we can effectively support the health and wellbeing across all levels. So I think for me, those, those are the joys and often sometimes the challenges. Richard, could you add to this about what's unique about the healthcare system in rural and remote communities? Sure, I love this question. Uh, and I think I can bring uh, an interesting lens to this because I'm not a clinician, but I do have the privilege of over many years engaging and talking with many people who work as clinicians, be they doctors, nurses, midwives, allied health professionals, Aboriginal health workers, practice managers, administrators, pharmacists, the whole group. And um, one of the things that's really struck me around rural and remote practice is a, a, a comment that was made to be by someone up in Gunnedah actually one day, and that is that rural, rural health is actually the last bastion of, uh, you know, of, of whole of healthcare, if you like. So it's where a team works as a team. It's where clinicians get to practice or train and then practice at the top of their scope. And it's where groups of people come together and think about having the patient at the center there is a bit of glory days in some of that sometimes when the old guard look back and talk about all the things that they could do 20 or 30 years ago. And no doubt the system's different now and there's a whole host of medical legal issues and accreditation and credentialing issues that come with this. But I see that in people's eyes when they talk to me, when I'm talking to them in remote, uh, remote and rural communities. And I certainly see it more in their eyes than I do friends and colleagues who work in the city. So obviously not to discount the value of working in metropolitan areas, but there is something about this the phrase I love most is about what we call deliberate team-based care. So one of the doctors that I've got to know talks a lot about the idea of making deliberate decisions to work in a generalist way and to support top-of-scope work for the whole of the group working in a town or a community. That's very inspiring for me, the whole idea of community of people and communities coming together to understand the services they need, how to maximise everything that's in the system to get the best for that community and also the concept of family practice. So being able to understand and sit and participate with families about the whole of their health is incredibly inspiring. And it's probably one of the things that motivates me the most as an administrator to see and support that way of thinking, because I'm not sure that exists in its full in, this, in the metro areas. Mm. Faye, Richard mentioned um, working at top of scope. Could you talk about what that actually, what that means? For me personally, and then more generally as I go around as, you know, the Deputy National Royal Health Commissioner and get to speak to so many different allied health professionals. And when we talk about top of scope of practice is recognising that the education that many health professionals receive then becomes, you know, really quite siloed unless you start to think about that more broadly about 
what is it that we learnt during our training to become a particular health professional? And then how do we use those full skills to bring into our day-to-day activities? And so when we consider that, we look at, well, what is it that we understood about that interdisciplinary, you know, about the acknowledgement of other disciplines that we work collaboratively with, but we don't know as intimately, but we have some understanding. And so it's that top of scope of practice of recognising um, how we do that in a safe and effective way. Uh, I, I think for me, it's looking at what are the extra skills that you then do conti- through your continual professional development to ensure that um, the components that may not be met by other health professionals in your community, you can start to then build on those. So, you know, um, it might be through complementary medicine. It might be, you know, um, extending your scope of practice into dermatology and, and becoming credentialed in, in other areas that allow communities to have that confidence in the capabilities of each of the health professionals that they engage with. And so for me, that is what it is. Um, as I said, going across as, as the um, Deputy National Health Commissioner, that there are varying views on what is top of scope of practice and you talk to different professions about what that looks like. Um, but as Richard pointed out, it comes back to at the centre of this is the care for individuals, families and communities. And when we talk about top of scope of practices, what is the scope of practice that we need to ensure that communities, families and individuals can remain well? Do you think that um, health practitioners can be motivated to um, extend their scope based on what the community needs? Like, is it more of a working for community? I see it time and time again, particularly in rural and remote. As Richard said, it's something you can see the joy in their eye about truly being able to be of value to your community. So when we talk about value-based care, it's the value of what communities are seeking from their health practitioners. And so it actually means never being stagnant. So you're constantly looking at what, what is being asked of you, you know, the general everyday conversations about oh do you do this or you know do you know anybody who does that and if you hear that repeatedly you see so many individuals that then go out and seek their own professional development in particular areas that may not have been their first thought when they started you know planning their PD at their start of the year or those sorts of things because they've heard it they've heard it in the conversations they've heard it through their multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary conversations that take place with you know administration or IT and so you do you see individuals that are taking on um, further education in roles that they probably never considered earlier on in their career. And Richard, could you talk to us about any myths or misconceptions about rural healthcare and address them? My mind immediately goes straight to the fact, one of the myths is that rural is not a deficit. So one of the great challenges that we have at the moment as a nation, I think, is not to look as rural Australia as a problem. That's actually where the opportunity is. Rural Australia is central to the success of our nation in the past and the future. And I think that at the moment it is so easy to throw darts at something and to see it as a problem or to see that the gaps are so wide. But the reality is they're everywhere in our society. And I feel that actually the continued 
um, unconstructive or there is unconstructive debate or finger pointing at rural and remote health that people don't actually realise they're actually part of the problem when they have that discourse because the work that we do is actually, we see it firsthand. If you, we actually have an obligation to support the pl placement of a clinician into a community where they're going to be safe and where they will thrive. And at the moment, there's so much conversation about the problems, which, which I would never not want to, we would never run away from talking about the problems. But the reality is um, people do want to work rurally and they are enjoying their work rurally, but they are struggle to, and we need teams of people to come and to, and to stay. And I just feel that out of everything you talk about, you start talking about myths, that would be the only thing I talk about. We need as, an, as a country and as a sector to actually embrace the opportunities and the value of remote and rural practice. Um, yes, challenge the system to be better always, but not at the detriment of those that are working there. Faye, do you have any myths or misconceptions that spring to mind? One of the myths is that people in rural and remote um, health don't have the same educational standards um, or don't, you know, deliver um, on quality of care in the same way that high volume might be seen as, you know, somebody who sees a high volume all the time will have more experience. But I think, you know, volume and value-based care should not be confused about quality of care. Um, and so I think the quality of care that people receive in rural and remote communities is, um, you know, still seen as, as a myth. The quality that they receive is still good. It may not be actually, you know, where and when they need it. It's when it happens, it is still of the same quality of any of their, you know, peers or practitioners that may work in urban centres. And I think you will be challenged in rural and remote just in different ways. And I think it goes to um, then saying that you will still receive exceptional care irrespective of where you are. And speaking of challenges, Richard, do you have any challenges that you've seen in rural and remote healthcare settings that have led to innovations or workarounds that you could um, talk to us about? One of the things I love about working in rural is you just shoot straight. You know, there's a problem and we fix it. And sometimes fixing it the first time, it doesn't work, but you go again because you're very, rural people are very, um, you know, they shoot straight <laughs> and they want and they need to see a problem fixed. So I really like the idea of talking about looking at solutions and accepting that the first go may not get it right. Uh, in terms of uh, some of the challenges that we see, I actually think from a, so from a clinical perspective, again, acknowledge I'm not a clinician, I have seen some pretty amazing um, systems or or service models that have been developed through some of the outreach programs that are done across the country and the rest and telehealth at the moment as well. But again, as an administrator, I think the thing I look at most is actually the idea of trying to aggregate all of the resources that are available into a central way of working. And one of the things that we've been working on at the moment in RDN is a program called Collaborative Care, where we've been trying to actually look in small remote communities and, and some larger uh, rural communities, the idea of actually working in a, in a partnership fashion where all of the contributors who have resource in the local health system come together and strategize about how to maximize that resource. And resource isn't all about funding all the time. So it's not necessarily just about Medicare or state funding and, and uh, federal funding. It's actually around all the resource. And that's about people, it's around infrastructure and it's around funding. 
And I and I feel that program, and, and it's happening, it's not just in our program, it's around the country, we're seeing lots of this stuff. But the idea of actually coming from a premise that it's actually very hard to find new money in the way of the world at the moment and looking to maximise and leverage what's currently available is, a, is a something I'd probably like to encourage all of us to be thinking about more. Faye, your eyes lit up when we started to speak about innovations. Could you give us some examples, please? I think it goes to what Richard was saying, you know, um, because rural and remote communities have historically always been innovative, they've always had to work with what they've had, you know, very pragmatic. You just have to look at the basic um, way that people in rural and remote communities actually scan the environment across. It's not just what's ahead of me, it's what's on the side of me and things like that. And I think the greatest analogy I can use is, is when you go to a farm, you know, some people will pull up and think, oh, the gate's locked. You only have to look 50 metres down the road and there's usually, you know, um, a grated travel way or um, another way of entering that gets used that means that they don't have to get out. So they create efficiencies around, I don't have to get out and open the gate every other time. You know, so it is talking about how do we collectively come together? And I think Richard, the other part that Richard spoke to was that the resources of our um, rural and remote communities, the greatest resource are the individuals that are there. They are there in that space as, you know, with a wealth of knowledge of what's already been where we are now and where we might want to be into the future, probably and invested a little bit more because it's it's enacted every day through, you know, they feel it when something goes, if, you know, the doctor's not open or the pharmacy's not open or, you know, the other health professional who was due to come today, they feel it because in the city sometimes they only have to go 10 kilometres down the road to get to the next one. Whereas, you know, we've got to ensure that we've got innovation to make sure that we do have contingency. So I get really excited by that because as Richard said, you know, our greatest innovators have come from rural and remote communities that have been able to see, you know, the best invention comes from need. And so when they look at what is the need, the innovation around how do we collectively meet that need becomes a shared passion. And it, creates conversations and it allows people to connect together with regards to what are we trying to do and then the process of being able to do it. Do you have any examples that you could give us? We have places where we don't have GP-led models. We do actually have allied health-led models where a GP is part of that team, but because they're not there all the time, they are working with the other health professionals that are there and, you know, so that is happening. There are moments, there are relationships that are, you know, exceptionally strong in rural and remote communities. In Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander affairs, we talk about nation building and the capacity to be, you know, self-determinant and sovereign. And there's, um, you know, as part of the global nation building, it's called the Nike approach. Just do it, you know. And you see that happening in so many small rural and remote communities and larger rural communities as well around they're just getting on and doing. They're not asking permission. They're not saying, please do this for me. They're just doing it. They're finding ways and means. And as I said, you don't need to look far to see where it's happening. 
Richard, could you talk to us about how you've seen COVID affect healthcare delivery um, in rural settings? So not only has it affected, it continues to impact. And the other thing to also to remember here is that um, we're actually talking more about natural disaster and emergencies and its impact in the last three to five years. Uh, I look back at uh, sort of 2019, uh, we were right at the back end of that very serious drought and we were actually responding as an organisation to very serious service and workforce issues in relation to drought. We then jumped into COVID, we've had bushfire, bushfire and then we've had COVID, flood, all the rest. So we're actually, in the way we're responding now is looking at the whole of the, whole of the response and the way to consider um, natural disaster and emergency. Again, there's been some incredible work done. Look at what we've done as a nation in responding to the COVID challenge. It's absolutely extraordinary. And uh, the people that have been on the front line um, have done an amazing job, but so too are the managers and the policy people. I mean, we all need to be able to say we've done well as a country. However, <laughs> then we go to fatigue, we go to stress, and we go to all of the things around the system that are now got a spotlight on them. And unfortunately, most days I can't see an answer. So for example, at the moment, I'll just give you some things that we're dealing with. We can't find a doctor some in, in some weeks to help someone have a holiday. The idea of locuming started off, well, my understanding of the idea of locuming was, was originally done so doctors and other health workers could have training opportunities and holiday opportunities. And it's actually become part of the national workforce strategy just to fill holes, not, not the original intent. And there is just so much of this under, these underlying issues that in a conversation like this, you go, well, that's interesting. That's, that's an interesting point. But there's 20 of these interesting points that all add up into something that's very large. It's actually around preserving the workforce right now. It's about us saying thank you and acknowledging and also ensuring that our rural clinicians are safe. One of the, one of the problems with saying thank you is if it's done in a manner that's trite. We, 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 last year, we ran a, a campaign called Rural Positive. Last November, we're going to do the same thing again this year which is around communities just saying thanks. And we felt that we shouldn't, we didn't feel it was right to do it in 2020 because at that time, the rural clinicians were actually asking to be safe. They didn't have PPE. They, they couldn't go to work knowing that they were okay. And we just didn't want to say, you know, thanks, we'll fix it all. But I think we've moved through that now. And actually now it's about local communities and the nation as a whole actually acknowledging our, our, health, our health people and just the chance to say thanks. That brings me nicely to what was what my, my last question, which was, um, what do you see as necessary for a future of safe and effective care, both the from the practitioner perspective, but obviously also uh, patients, families, broader community? We need organisations where people can go to work, and I include administrators here, where they are able to have secure and fulfilling employment, whether you're a clinician or a worker. And I'm not sure we can say that hand on heart at the moment. There is enough work in health for all of us to do the work. And I think what I've started to see recently, and this is almost an impassioned plea in some ways, is I think if we actually can have our, our, the boards of our organisations across the country that are working in health and our senior leaders, actually, when times are tough, it's very, very important not to have our backs against the wall and go to survival mode. Because what happens in survival mode is you start to fight and you start to get a bit catty. And I'm seeing a bit of that at the moment. And because there's a lot of stress and the fatigue that I spoke to. And I think as sort of senior leaders now, we all need to be thinking a bit more about the social leadership part of health 
and thinking about how does health contribute to uh, economic development rurally, how does health contribute to thriving communities and try to help everybody be the best they can be and sustained. And I, I, I'm sort of coming a bit from the bit from the gut here with that because I'm seeing it a lot in the last month and it's starting to worry me. Everybody has to be better. There's no problem there. But if we try too much to sort of you know cut it off at the knees or even this rationalising sort of thing because budgets are tough, what I worry about is there will be a centralisation of resource back to either regional areas or back to metro. And we're seeing a bit of that at the moment. And I, I'd love to see the rural health sector actually go the other way and say, let's look at everybody that's there and let's make sure they're still there in five years, be them an organisation or, or, or an individual. Thanks, Richard and Faye. The other part is, is looking the other way. You know, if I use the gate part is we just go, oh, we'll put it all back into a central pod or we'll put it all back into, you know, delivery from an urban area. Let's look a bit and look at where there have been some really successful stories and actually expand those and so invest in you know rural and remote businesses and organizations that have been doing well and let them you know use the funds to funnel back the other way um, workforce is always an issue and I'm not just speaking about the clinical workforce I think you know again you see if we don't have appropriately skilled and trained and that's you know as I said um, from cleaning staff to, you know, hospitality, food and beverage, all of those, that they can see a system come undone. So if you don't have them, then you don't have access to, and we've seen, you know, um, we talk about, you know, GP-led models and that we need to focus on doctors and don't get me wrong, we need, what we need is an entire workforce to be able to be celebrated and stood up. We've seen, um, you know, hospitals shut down because nursing staff have gone off and so they can't run birthing services because the doctors don't have trained midwives and nurses to support them to do the work that they need to do. So again, it's looking in the more holistic way of, of who, who we need um, and when we need them and creating those opportunities to say, well, what do we do um, differently. I think blended models of, of employment, you know, I work in the tertiary education sector, um, but don't really do anything clinically in that role as a pharmacist, that's in my own personal time. So, you know, there are opportunities to look at where we have other parts of the workforce that may not be as fatigued, don't get me wrong, I think everybody's fatigued um, around uh, this at the moment, but that could come in and work with our peers that have been doing this for a very long time. The other part to this, and you know, I was really blessed to um, see my nephew graduate last week at ANU, but see the number of people who were undertaking further studies in um, disaster and recovery and resource management and recognizing that this is something that will be part of our ongoing future and that we need to understand what have we learned from these experiences and how do we use them to create that. So I think, you know, there's also other workforces that are being expanded as well around all of, um, you know, the collaborations that may be required to ensure that we get to stand up a workforce in its totality to meet the health and wellbeing needs of all of our communities. 
that was a really, I think, important conversation. And it's really great to talk about collaboration and holistic care and 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 the, the patient focus no matter where they are. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Taking Care. If you have any questions or feedback, you can email us at communications at and please do subscribe so you don't miss any more great episodes um, by searching for Taking Care wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, take care. Bye.